Welcome to What's the Point, an after-hours podcast series brought to you by Mobas. We're joined by Katie Vickery, Head of Brand Strategy and Insight. We're joined by uh, Greg Bryant, our creative lead, and I'm Adam Tuckwell, the commercial director at Mobas. And the purpose of What's the Point is that the three of us get together and we talk about interesting things that we see and, and things that we think might be of interest to, to you listeners. And I don't know about everybody else here, but today my my social feeds have all been full of um, images about the new PlayStation launch and the new PlayStation 5 next-gen console has, has come onto the markets. There'll be there'll be groans for people listening if you're not into this sort of thing, but it's absolutely everywhere at the moment. Um, and there are two consoles coming out this year. So there's a big rivalry between the, the PlayStation that's out and the new Xbox that's coming out. And for me, it sparked some thoughts because people that i know who are into gaming are either one or the other they really like a playstation or they really like the xbox and it got me thinking that often there are these cases where you have these these two killer brands and i wondered whether this element of competition really really drives and pushes people further does it make you think differently does it make you think more creatively or does it actually um limit what you can do and and position what you can do and if you're a brand who's really pioneering and out there and there are no other competitors does does that give you even more creative freedom to to be yourself so i don't know guys have you have you seen any of the playstation stuff does it does it inspire you does it excite you or is it a bit stale and, and tried what do you think katie um, I've, I have seen it around actually. I've seen it quite a lot on my Twitter feed today, and I do. I think it's really good. I think um, I think uh, they did something with the Oxo Tower on the previous launch, didn't they? Which was quite cool. But um, I really like it. I think it's um, it's obviously grabbed everyone's attention, and um, I think it's nice how we're starting to see other people jump on that kind of conversation a little bit. People are talking about you know, people are trying to do their own little Thor symbols, which is quite interesting. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see what, what Xbox do. I think it'll be interesting to see whether they feel now the need to do something sort of similarly stunt-esque or whether they do something that's much more aligned to their brand. But um, yeah, I thought it was quite, I thought it was quite interesting that obviously it's, it's all over the, the, um, the press at the moment. So I, th- I thought it was quite interesting. What about you, Greg? Yeah, I think I, I, I'm with you in, in as much as I'm really interested to see what Xbox do because Xbox don't do as many launches as PlayStation do. If you think about how many generations of PlayStation there are, what are we on now? Five? Well, Xbox, the new Xbox is the move on from Xbox One. So it's a massive change for them to launch a new console. It's, 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 It's obviously not a coincidence that they're happening around the same time, but it's going to be really interesting to see what the Xbox way of launching is compared to the PlayStation way of launching. Which one is more playful? Which one is more gamey which one is more about stunts and and to see the differences between because effectively right they're they're uh and the new generation of game console being launched it's pretty much the same games on both of them slight differences between the two but two two brands that are positioned slightly differently so it'll be really interesting to see how xbox react to this with their launch compared to what we've seen today specifically around london with with the playstation launch 
I think it's really interesting because this this idea about people aligning themselves to a brand, and we often talk about be, people being brand advocates, and and that's the sort of golden ticket, isn't it? That's what we want. We want people to become our brand advocates of the brands that that we look after and represent. And I'm just curious because if we think about it, there are some really great brand pairings, aren't there? So we talk about Coke and Pepsi. We talk about Burger King and McDonald's. Um, we talk about and PlayStation and an Xbox, and you, you you know it 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 doesn't really matter where you're operating, where you look. There often are cases where you have these these two brands that are offering something relatively similar, but their tone of voice differs, their visual style differs, the the, the uniqueness of their offering um, might not actually be that distinct. And I'm just curious if you're if you're operating in a market where um, there's there is another competitor. How does how does that impact what you do in terms of your marketing? Does it does it inspire you? Does it drive you? Does it force you to be more creative, um, or or are you constantly looking over your shoulder when actually you should be looking ahead at, at what you and your audience want? Mm. I think it's, I think it's quite interesting with um, Pepsi and Coke that you reference because we talked a little bit about them before and how Coca Cola is definitely more of a heritage brand and. You've got Christmas coming up and no doubt, I don't even know whether it's already on yet, the Christmas holidays are coming out, will be out. Um, whereas Pepsi is so much more kind of, and they reinvent themselves all the time. I remember you, Greg, talking about their kind of logo just being tweaked um, over the many generations it's kind of been in our lives. And I think Pepsi and Coke have done a really good job of understanding, kind of sussing each other out initially in the market, understanding what bit of the market they own and really going after that and not kind of trying to, Obviously, they do compete because they're very similar products, but but understanding exactly what their position is. Um, and I think that they're obviously very, very well-known brands, but I, I think that they, because they've had that positioning, um, they know what cut of the market is theirs. Yes, it drives them to an extent, but not as much as the likes of McDonald's and Burger King, who are, who are more closely aligned. They do you know, have their own bits of the market in You'll find a McDonald's in every high street, which you won't find a Burger King in every high street. You might find one in a service station, for example. Um, so I, I think they're kind of kind of in each other's territories a little bit more, if that makes sense, whereas Coca-Cola and Pepsi feel a little bit more distant. And then you've got the likes of, um, I don't know, Dr. Pepper, who are, you know, more of a, I suppose, challenger brand in that space, who can be, can be really brave and bold in their marketing and the way they talk. Um, I remember years ago they did the you know Dr Pepper so misunderstood, um, and basically people talking people, them talking about how people hated their product, but actually taste it and it's actually really good. It's completely misunderstood as a as a product. It's it's actually amazing. Um, so I think that's really interesting. But I think it depends on how what how closely those two top competitors align themselves to the same target audience. If that makes sense. Do you think the Dr Pepper thing is interesting? Actually, do you think that? potentially something like Dr Pepper is more competition to those big two than they are to each other because you're right in in a sense in that Coke and Pepsi know their audience and actually they perform better by knowing those audiences if they go after each other's audiences neither of them will win that they'll both lose out whereas as we said before Pepsi is the next generation so it's constantly having to reinvent because a generation lasts probably certainly for that market space three to five years. So they're having to reinvent Coke. Don't Coke are heritage and they, they keep the same, the same audience, whether they're Gen Z's or whether they're, um, you know, 50, 60 year olds, it, it's all about the heritage. So actually are we looking at brands like, um, 
Dr. Pepper or even things like Sprite that could be a bigger competition to those brands. Similarly with, with um, let's say, supermarkets. Tesco's and Sainsbury's traditionally big supermarkets, right? Mm-hmm. And you're either a Tesco's person or you're a Sainsbury's person predominantly. But now you've got other other supermarkets coming into that space, the budget supermarkets yeah. that actually aren't seen so much as budget anymore. It's actually quite smart to shop there. So are those big brands in danger or, or seeing smaller brands like Dr. Pepper or like Aldi as bigger competition because they're more likely to seal the space because people are less likely to go. It's like a foot. It's like football, right? You're, you're, you're less likely to go from one rival to another as a player, yeah, that's but you are more likely to transfer to another club. I wonder, I wonder on that. I think that's particularly interesting around the, that supermarket mentality. If you think of yourselves as the marketing managers within Tesco's, all of your eyes are on, Sainsbury's probably you probably think you're not going to attract as the shoppers and Waitrose shoppers probably are not likely to convert unless we've got a recession or something coming on um so maybe their entire focus was around retaining their clients by saying that they're not Sainsbury's and you know all of their marketing advertising around there do you think the the budget supermarkets really sort of they were so obsessed looking at those competition that they were sort of blindsided by the new entrance. Actually, interestingly, as you say that, Adam, now I'm thinking about it even more because we started talking about it. It is having an effect because if you look at the recent Tesco's ads, not the Christmas one that's just come out, but the one before that is an Aldi price match. It's not a Sainsbury's comparison. It's an Aldi, it's an Aldi comparison, which is really interesting. Mm, that's very true and I think with supermarkets they are constantly trying to just make small incremental wins against each other and and price matching is a really good way of doing that and I think um in the not the recession we've just been going through but the previous recession we saw the appearance of u-shaped markets where people would kind of shop do their main shop in the likes of Aldi and Lidl and probably feel quite smug that they were shopping there because they were getting good products for a good price and then they would go and get their I don't know, roasting joint for a Sunday in Waitrose. And it was the likes of Tesco and Sainsbury's that were really losing out. And I think people are now in that mentality more and more that they like having those little discovery brands. So the likes of Dr. Pepper, you know, not so much discovery brand, really a challenger brand, I suppose, or like Brewdog. People like saying, oh, I know I like Brewdog. I don't I don't drink, I don't know, Corona or Perone or anything. I, have, I like Brewdog. People like being able to kind of find these fun little new brands and also refer on. And I think the football analogy is quite an interesting one as well, Greg. It's quite a good comparison. But I think the supermarkets are, we always saw sort of the top top three or four supermarkets for years and years and years. And now you're absolutely right, Adam. If you shop in Aldi or Lidl, you feel quite smug that you shop there and you kind of like to talk about it. Whereas I don't talk about the fact that, I mean, I've got a Tesco's down the road, so I, shop, I mainly shop in Tesco's. I don't shout about that because I'm it's very generic and it's very mainstream and I do it for convenience I'm not proud to shop there but someone who shops in Aldi would probably say oh you like you like that um Prosecco that's from Aldi mm. it's this new little pride thing it's quite interesting really yeah and I think with with the budget supermarkets people have become much wiser to buying branded stuff from there and they'll get you know there are things, there are supermarket own brand things that you, you might not get from Aldi, but if you're going to go and buy, I don't know, a crate of beer or, uh, you know, 
tins of beans or whatever it is and you and you buy branded it's smarter to shop there mm. when, I, when I was younger it was a if you like I remember going in there when I was young with my mum for some reason and it was way 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 before it was even considered like one of the top and um, supermarkets I remember going in there and saying mum that looks like um the Pim's bottle and she said no it's not Pim's but it's it's the same but it's just it's just different branding but it, you know they copy stock brands um labels and stuff and i'm thinking oh that's a bit of a joke whereas now if we think about those supermarkets they're so highly regarded and it's just the perception has completely shifted among the general public um and they're just they're seen as the one on top now just gonna say i think you're following this down down a little bit of a rabbit hole but i think that's quite fun to do katie in 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 the past i'm sure you've referenced rory sutherland's talk about choice Yes. And why that's particularly prevalent in those supermarkets. Remind our listeners what, what that is. Yeah. So um, uh, the, the kind of idea that I think we all maybe would naturally assume as members of the general public that we like having choice. So we like being able to have lots of different options that we can compare everything by by price and by product spec and by brand and then make a decision. Whereas actually choice is really, really stressful. It's really stressful for the human brain because you might always have a constant nagging feeling that you've made the wrong decision. So if you've got, I don't know, five different strawberry brands in front of you and some are big strawberries and juicy strawberries and they're a bit more expensive and some are smaller and cheaper and some go out of date tomorrow and some go out of date in three days time. You've got to weigh all of those things up and you might, you will always leave the supermarket thinking, oh, what if I bought those big juicy strawberries that more expensive? that have been a better choice and actually the reason one of the reasons that the likes of Aldi and Little have done so well is that they don't give you all that choice you can go in you pick a product it's almost them saying these are the, these are the chopped tomatoes you need or these are the strawberries you need you buy them you leave the store you're happy and you cannot you don't have to worry about all those decisions you've made and weighing up cost versus product and all those sorts of things so yeah. um the choice is detrimental actually <coughs> to the consumer experience funnily enough yeah, and I think also with those, certainly with those um, more budget supermarkets, they're, they're newer brands to us, particularly in the UK. They're newer brands to us, and and it allows them to be more risky, be more challenging. They're not the market leaders. They're not going to be the market leaders, certainly for a long time, because of the brand status. But it allows them, because of that, to kind of act like, the younger sibling that that's a bit naughty and can get away with stuff. And that happens across, like going back to what you were saying at the start, Adam, across different sectors and having two brands, let's say that, that lead that sector, it allows younger startups or less well-known brands to move into that space and to start to, for want of a better phrase, gather followers gather advocates that are really on board with those brands and start to go in the direction they want to go in with the backing of those people to eventually get to the point where they are challenging the big boys like like a brand like Audi is doing it it would have started being really cheeky actually being quite risky um you know pushing limits in that market space gathering followers gathering those people like you said Katie that that find those things that that want to be at the front of that movement if you like I found this, but this is my brand. I know this brand. It's no one else knows it. It's mine, and I'm and I'm savvy because I know all these things that they do, and I know I can get my branded goods there cheaper. And actually, that's the force that allows those lower tier brands to challenge the the, the leaders in that market space. 
And, and interesting that you use the word followers, Greg, because I think particularly with the rise of these new newer brands that are entering the market and challenging and being brave, you know, I think, Adam, you shared uh, something a little while ago on, on our um, sort of company teams chat, and it was about, a, was it as a city council? I can't remember which one it was. But Doncaster. Yes. Listeners, follow Doncaster City Council. It's absolutely fantastic. It's so funny. Um, but because they're not, you know, obviously they're at the city council, it's like different. But these brands can be really brave in their marketing, and that includes social media. So the way that they respond to people, the tone of voice they use, um, they can do it not just through their kind of more traditional comms, but they can do it on social and really have interesting and engaging conversations with people. We see the likes of Greg's do it all the time um, and, and many other brands. But I, and I think that's that gives them so much freedom. They're then really having a direct conversation with, you know, with with their with their audience. And I think you see the likes of Tesco who are, you know, really um, straight jacketed by the probably rules and regulations and, you know, FAQs that they have to answer if people ask certain questions. But many of the other brands who are maybe a bit smaller can have a bit more banter with their audience. And yes, you might complain who bought strawberries and Aldi that, I don't know, one of them was mouldy or whatever, you might be able to have a little bit more banter about that, whereas Tesco would have to go out with quite a strict, strict answer. I think you, it does kind of, um, it, it's, I, I do often think these brands at the top are really restricted, and yet we have such high expectations of them. Um, I think, you know, John Lewis, we will talk about John Lewis, but I think, you know, they, the launch of their um, Christmas ad every year, everyone has such high expectations of what that is. They can't now move away from that. Whereas, I think it's—is it? I always get confused. Is it Audi or Lidl who have done the Christmas ad that's taking the mick out of Christmas ads? They can—they can do that. They can do that with absolute freedom, and it's completely in line with their brand. Um, I'm sorry, I never know the difference between Audi and Lidl. I apologise, but because um, you shop at Tesco's, that's absolutely fine. I'm just trying to think how do we how do we translate this because whilst we'd all love to work at McDonald's or Burger King or mm. Coke or, or, or Pepsi, for, for most of us we actually spend our our marketing careers working in um, really interesting and fascinating businesses in a broad range of sectors who who aren't quite so glamorous or aren't quite so well known perhaps. Um, what what advice can we have then at, at, as to how much time we spend worrying about our competitors or looking at our competitors? Should we should we be sitting down every month and, and looking at what our competitors are saying, what they what they're doing, what imagery they're using, and what they're doing? Or should we spend more time worrying about our audience mm. and ensuring we, we retain, satisfy and excite them? Yeah, what do you, what do you think? I, I think that you need to have an awareness of the competition and what the competition are doing. But you don't you don't evolve your whole brand strategy around what your competitors are doing, because then you're not true to who you are as a brand. Unless, of course, your, your brand proposition is that you, that's what you do. We watch competitors and we compete with them in that way. But so much more important to be focused on who you are as a brand how your brand acts and it's interesting adam as you say you know people strive let's take marketing people because that's what we are right so people would strive to we say we say people would strive to work at coke or at pepsi but would they why because in my mind there's they're different things and yes that is that's excellent and they're the kind of brands you want to work with but equally startup brands the challenger brands they're exciting 
they're exciting brands to work with and to work for because they have that freedom. They're finding their feet. They know who they want to be as a brand. They they have advocates, and it's growing that that base. You you you've almost got a blank cap. Certainly from a from a branding point of view, you've got a blank canvas to play with. Where to? Where do you take that brand? The the, the possibilities are endless with a brand that that's that's not got all that history that you need to worry about you have the freedom to be flexible going forward and likewise with the bigger brands it's 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 really challenging and interesting from a creative standpoint because you have to take that into account and work out right, how do we use that to go somewhere different how do we use that to to pick up new customers or to to to, to challenge other areas or to, to go anywhere with it you know take virgin for example they didn't probably didn't start out with the vision to take over the world started out to open a record store but it was the vision and the the um the positioning of it as a brand and the beliefs of it of a brand that started to take it into those different areas that probably were never thought of at the beginning but but because people were on board with it and they had followers and they had advocates they could go in those and go into those different areas and say no we're going to do it like we're going to take this market on the way that we work and we will be the best brand in this marketplace you know it, talking about supermarkets if virgin opened a supermarket you kind of know what it would be like you know what people would go there you know what to expect from it you would know that it would shake up that marketplace it wouldn't make its decisions based on competitors in that market space it would make its decisions based on the fact of we're virgin this is how we do things and this is what our supermarket is going to be like and that in itself shakes up the industry yeah, and I, I, I do. I sort of, I sort of agree with you, Greg. <laughs> I agree. But that, you also sort of disagree. <laughs> I also sort of disagree. So, um, I guess I'm coming at this more from a brand strategy point of view. Naturally, I think that um, as marketeers or as small businesses or you know SMEs, I think that you should keep a pretty close eye on your competitors. Um, I think you should do regular, regular checking out what they're doing. Um, should understand what they're doing. Should understand their um, how they're positioning themselves. Um, you know where their activity is in the year, kind of where their focuses are. And the reason I'm saying that is not because I think that um, you should copy what they're doing at all. I think it's important to understand as a brand, as you have said, Greg, understand what our our proposition is, our point of difference is. We when we do brand workshops with clients, we plot we plot where their brand is versus their competitors and we try and find a bit of clear blue water to put their brand to keep them away from the competitors they have a really nice sort of big big pond to fish in so they're not constantly competing and i think you need to keep an eye on your competitors to make sure that they where to see where they're moving i think all their competitors are starting to talk a little bit more around this space or um i don't know they're trying to go after that sector or speak to this audience oh that's where we are okay well that's how are we going to how are we going to address that ourselves? It's not to say that you react to every single change, but I think you need to have really clear awareness of that. But ultimately, as you have said, Greg, stay true to who you are as a brand. It's a really balancing act, and I'm not saying it's one or the other. I think you just have to have a really clear understanding of who you are as a brand and also what you're trying to achieve as a business, because ultimately your brand strategy should be rooted in your business as well. It, it, they, they all need to be sort of knitted together. So I think it's a bit of both. Mm. It went a bit deep there, didn't it? Did it? <laughs> Interestingly, though, 
just changing the subject a little bit, but sticking on the subject of supermarkets. Um, have you guys seen the new Tesco's ad, the Christmas Tesco's ad? I'm going to talk about a Christmas yes. ad, but it's not going to be the John Lewis ad. It's the Tesco's one. I really like it. And I, really I love li- it. I really like it because I wrote an insight at the start of lockdown about how ads were really boring and had got a bit lazy and were all kind of zoomy uh, and and just people reassuring just brands reassuring customers that they were still there via zoom and people were working at home and we saw loads of them and and i've been waiting and waiting and waiting for a good lockdown ad and i think this one is it because it 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 pokes fun at lockdown it pokes fun at some of the things we've had to do through lockdown and some of the opinions people have had it's the it's the um there's no naughty list this year i just think it's such a good idea i think it's really i think it's really hit the mark I think it's the first, as I say, it's the first lockdown ad that that isn't specifically about lockdown. It's just a really good ad, and I think it really taps into where we are at the moment. And I know it's a bit off track from what we've been talking about, but it was talking about the supermarkets that got me thinking about it, and the fact that every year there's a there's lots of serious ads and lots of there's there's loads of ads I think at, at Christmas that are kind of hoping that they hit that John Lewis jackpot and go, actually, this just takes off. It wasn't meant to, but it's taken off. And you can see it in, in, in the concepts behind it. And you can see, you can just tell that in the concept, it's kind of, this is a nice ad, but we're hoping that it just hits something somewhere and it flies. And then someone wants another one next year and another one next year, uh, like the John Lewis one did, which, which was kind of, it really hit them up. But the, the Tesco's one for me is, as I say, it's the first decent lockdown ad. I've seen. Yeah, I, I I really like it as well. I've got to agree. It's kind of um saying all the things we're thinking or thinking, oh, that's a bit naughty, but that's kind yeah. of funny, you know, the way it's kind of reacted to. I, I really like it. I think um John Lewis have done a great job this year, personally really like it. I think they've really, really um, made a rod for their own back because every year they're like, Well, if I don't cry at the John Lewis Christmas ad, it's a failure. And it's it's so difficult. And how their creative team over Adam and Eve DDB, I think, still do the ads, um, how every year they kind of pull all that brand information together about John Lewis and Waitrose and try and make people cry and make it relevant and hit the audience and try and get some product in there. It's an absolute nightmare. And I think that it's really, really difficult. And I think that because it's become this huge phenomenon, I think... Um, and everyone's an expert. My mum, who knows nothing about marketing whatsoever, bless her, she will say, oh, I thought it was brilliant, made me cry, absolutely fantastic. Or my auntie will say, oh, I didn't think it was very good this year. And it's based on not a lot, it's consumer kind of gut feel, but everyone like a marketing expert. I think um, kind of sort of looping this back to our conversation earlier, I think M&S is really, is really interesting as a, as a brand and how they've kind of evolved over recent years. So it propped up on my link for the LinkedIn feed, their Christmas ad. It's all product. It's, you know, dark backgrounds, um, you know, melting the metal puddings and things and a voiceover. I think it's Olivia Coleman saying, oh, delicious puddings. And I think that they're a brand who, um, you know, everyone's really admired. Everyone's always thought, you know, if I go and get a sandwich from Minnesota, it's a bit of a treat. Or if I go and get my my dinner on a Saturday night from Minnesota, it's a bit of a treat. And I think they've, I think they're a brand who have been, relatively up the top and have their own sort of place in the market where yes they sell greetings cards and shoes but they also sell really posh sandwiches I 
really lost their way. I think they've really lost their way over recent years. I, I particularly think that's the case for. Um, it really came to came became apparent to me when I was watching Shamelessly. Britain's Got Talent. I think a couple of years ago, and they started doing the ad spots for them. Yeah, yeah the bumpers. Um, do you remember? And it was little bits of food, M and S food, on a table that became talking items with like googly eyes, and it was like Anthony's voice. So was, it really, really jarred for me. And my husband turned to me and said, what on earth's going on? And I was like, I think this is m It was just awful. It was, it really cheapened the brand. And I feel like they've kind of gone down this path now where they've started to, they sort of took the mick out of themselves a little bit, you know, by the, not just any pudding, it's an m pudding. And years ago, that, that was the thing that saved m Those adverts saved the brand years ago. And I really feel like they've lost their way. And I almost think that's an example of one of those, you know, brands at the top who they they don't necessarily have a really close competitor. And then you've got the likes of, I don't know who they might, who might compete them and put them against, but Waitrose have got a really distinct um, offering. They do food and that's what they do. And I, I think they've really lost their way. And I think it's really interesting to see that they've tried to take a bit of a risk by going down that slightly different positioning. And I, I, I don't think it's paying off. I think that's really interesting for a business like M&S that has these two very distinct offerings, their, their, their clothing offering and their food offering are, are chalk and cheese, aren't they? And they appeal to very different people and they have very different style messages. And perhaps that's part of the case. It's at the moment, those bumper ads are always really interesting for me as to how brands try and communicate, tie it into the show and understand what they're trying to do whilst also communicate who they are. At the moment, the, the bumper ads for, for the Great British Bake Off are by Aldi, and they've got talking gingerbread men, yes. and that kind of just works. Yeah, because they're quite so funny it, and you know, yeah, they're it, lighthearted. It is, it, is about, it is about having that awareness of who your audience are and, and what they're trying to do. Um, Farron Ball Paint released an ad series just at the start of lockdown that was clearly filmed beforehand um, where they were just taking the piss out of their users. Yeah, and they 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 were mocking they were mocking them around. Um, you can come in for a play date with your child, but you'll have to sign a contract to <laughs> agree to fix the wall if their paint you know goes in the way that sort of thing. That's great. I think M and S were almost on the cusp of doing that with the whole. You know, it's not just Emmy pudding; it's an M and S pudding. But do you know what? As someone who occasionally bought an M S pudding, I was buying into that. You know, yeah, and and that was all. And that was all about, like you've said with the Farrow and Ball thing, that was all about making it accessible to everyday people, people that were aspiring to 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 be part of that brand but didn't want the stigma that went with it. Um which is which is why the MS clothing range has really struggled and why it's really not taken off no matter what they've been no matter what they've done with it, because because it had a stigma around it. And and similarly with Farron Ball, it was very high class and it was it was aspirational, but there was this stigma around the type of person that would that would use it. Whereas actually, a lot of everyday people were using it or um, or, or wanted to. They were probably being put off by the stigma of the people that were seen to be using it. And that's yeah. what they did really cleverly with that with those ads was was kind of poke fun at the people that people thought were using it but probably weren't, and making it much more accessible to people that actually were a massive part of the market that 
that were wanting to use it or were using it and 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 opening that market space up it was really clever really clever yeah and i i think that the lesson you know the advice that i'd give to anyone any marketer or sort of you know business owner listening around this is I think the most important thing is to understand who you are as a brand. I'll say this again. I'll say I said it once. I'll say it again. (laughs) Who you are as a brand and stay true to that, but also understand who your audience are. And if you're going to try and open up to a new audience, don't alienate your your other audience. So M&S have kind of got that balance a bit wrong, I think, whereas other brands we've talked about have done really well to open up these new markets. Every done a fantastic job um over the last uh, i think a couple of weeks ago they launched a, a new ad and it was to singing in the rain and it was shot kind of in, in spitfields around you know around that area of london somewhere and ended up on a beach somewhere and it's the most glorious piece of advertising it's beautifully shot it's kind of these young people doing this really cool street dance wearing all this burberry gear and it just feels like the perfect way to reinvent their brand that does not alienate their kind of, I suppose, more traditional audience, but just open, just pushes open that door to that younger kind of um, hipster generation mm. who would maybe embrace wearing Burberry clothes. And I think they've done that really well. But I think that ultimately it's understanding the audience are really, really, really well. Uh, yeah. If you're not sure whether something's going to land with your audience, test it. Just make sure that you test it. You, there's, there's so many cost-effective ways of doing that nowadays. Um, I think there's absolutely no excuse not to be testing things with the audience, particularly if an audience that you're going to cold and you've never reached out to before. So I think that's really, really critical in getting these things right. So I've got a query to, to, to finish us off, just to, just to start to think about this. Um, Greg, you talked about an article that you wrote about the lack of creativity during lockdown. I think um, over the course of 2020, since since the pandemic first started here in the UK, um, brands have been really reluctant to do anything that might seem to uh, offend, upset or, you know, damage or, or, or detriment their, their share of voice and, and all that sort of stuff. So they've been very safe in what, what they've been doing. Um, is Christmas and the fact that... Um, it's always a big tentpole moment and everybody does stuff. Do you think the fact that we're now into a Christmas cycle gives brands and, and marketeers uh, a, a rallying call to start again? It, does, does Christmas mean, right, it's okay now, we can start to do marketing properly again now, we can start to talk again because we, we've done it, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and now that there's there's a reason to do it, we can start to be a bit more liberal and a bit more active? Yeah, I think... It's a really fine balance, isn't it? Because although Christmas is happening, well, we don't know if Christmas is happening yet. And that, that's something that, that's playing on it. But the difference with Christmas as opposed to the rest of the year when we've been in lockdown, effectively, is Christmas is about escapism. It's about it's about taking people to those magical places. You know, no one's Christmas is really like that. But every year we hit this time of year and we all think Christmas really is like that. And then we get to kind of Christmas and it's not. It's just bedlam. And and interestingly, <laughs> it's 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 um something that I was reading the other day around the around the, the John Lewis ad coming back to that around the whether it was ethically right for them to do their ad this year because of stores closing and people being laid off and should they be spending millions on their on on the ad and and actually there was it was it was a um it was discussion i was reading on one of the social sites and and there were people from both sides as you always get on that and and 
there were some really kind of sensible views on it around actually it probably is the right thing to do because yes people have been laid off and we need to consider that and stores have been closed but actually by doing a christmas ad it's trying to generate business it's not just about pushing the brand it's actually trying to generate business which allows jobs to be freed up and whether that is the right kind of thing to do around it or whether it is just about sell 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 and and that's uh, particularly why with john lewis it's not all about sell 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 on this ad it is about doing good and spreading the love and 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 I think that's a really key point, especially this year. Yes, we spread the magic. Yes, things seem a bit more not normal, but but from from a marketing perspective, a bit more normal around the Christmas period, and and it's starting to happen now. We're seeing it, um, but it's about how you do it, how far you push it, make people feel magical. But actually, there's not loads of ads that are sell, sell, sell this year. Yes, there are a few, but they all the ads this year seem to be more around the feeling of Christmas and which brand gives you the most Christmassy feeling rather than which brand is giving you the best offer. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think had um, John Lewis not done a Christmas ad this year, I think you'd had, you'd have had a huge, a, a much bigger backlash that, you know, Christmas was cancelled and that John Lewis were, you know, being awful that, you know, mm. not sad more than, or the amount of complaints they've had about actually doing that and it is charity related anyway so i can take that but I, I think to kind of um my viewpoint on your question adam is i i really hope that people see this as a bit more of a you know it has been a rough year for a lot of people and a lot of businesses and i think i hope people do see it as a bit of a stop take stock whatever christmas looks like this year kind of a bit of a reflection and People talk about 2020 being awful, don't they? It's almost become like um, people are almost using it as a, that it'll be a phrase in years' time. It'll be like, oh, that's so 2020, like it's so awful. Um, and I kind of hope that we go 2021 with a kind of new new perspective and, you know, this the virus is still going to be around. There's still going to be issues. NHS is still going to be busier than normal. But I kind of hope that businesses go into 2021 with a fresh perspective and say, do you know what? We've got real. There are some opportunities that have come out of this really rubbish situation, and let's go and attack it head on. And, and you know, yeah. start as we can. I think. I think that's. I think that's it. And I think that's how we should be going into the new year. Embrace the difference. Things are going to be different, but let's make difference a positive rather than a negative going into the new year. And I think that's something that we're going to start to see. Like, like with Christmas, Christmas is going to be different this year. Everybody knows that. Let's embrace it. Let's make it the best we can we can with what we've got. And, I, and, and I'm hoping that we, when we start to come out of this, which it looks like we're going to start to do at some point over the next few months, and go into the new year, we start to do that. We start to embrace the difference. We start to look for the positives in things, and we really focus on doing really lovely, clever things with the positives that we're given rather than making everything negative. The, the one thing that I've come out of this with is, yeah, there's loads of negatives about this, loads. But there are, but it, it forces you to go into a positive mindset and to find the positives where they are. As I say, Christmas is going to be different. We might all be at home on our own at Christmas, just with our households and not and not mixing. We don't know. But if that's what happens, I'm already starting to embrace the positives of that because I, I, I'm thinking about how we can do good stuff with that. And I think that's if we can go into the new year with that, with a bit more freedom, but almost a clean slate, if you like, and 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 a start over, a reset then that's a positive, right? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing what brands do in 2021. I'm looking forward to seeing how they um, embrace challenges, but also embrace the fact that there's going to be loads of new, hopefully new 
challenger brands entering the market because out of any recession comes startups and comes new mm-hmm. business opportunities. So I think um, particularly for you know technology companies that we work with, I think it'd be really interesting to see how they embrace those challenges and take it on. So now's the time to act. And that's the point. Thanks for listening to What's the Point, the After Hour podcast series from the team at Mobus. 